Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and today I'm very happy to be joined by Dr. Amy Bender. So I first came across Amy through Greg Potter, who uh, our audience will know has come on many times talking about sleep, and Amy is also a big fanatic of sleep. She's awake right now and hopefully wide awake for the podcast, uh, but she specializes in working with athletes for optimizing their sleep. And so I thought she would be someone perfect to bring onto the show to delve into that. Uh, and I want to first of all ask Amy to kind of, I, I'm actually very interested into what got you interested in sleep specifically with athletes and kind of, yeah, where did, what's taking you to where you are today? Yeah, sure. I, uh, I started in the sleep field, I guess it's been almost 15 years ago. I went to my aunt's sleep lab in Portland, Oregon, uh, where she was a sleep technologist and she introduced me to the lab um, hooked up patients with electrodes across the scalp, the chest, looking at brainwave activity, monitoring muscle activity, eye activity, and then how those signals translate into sleep stages. So she also showed me the different stages of sleep. I was pretty much hooked. I went back to my hometown in Spokane, Washington, volunteered at a sleep lab, ended up landing a job at a sleep and performance at the sleep and performance research center at Washington State University as their lead sleep technologist, which was very lucky on my end to get that job without any experience. Um, and then was a sleep technologist there. So hooking up participants with electrodes, helping run sleep deprivation studies, um, look, uh, scoring for the different stages of sleep. I was a sleep technologist for about four years. And then after that, I started my master's, did my master's and PhD in experimental psychology, focusing on sleep EEG and the impact of sleep deprivation on cognitive health and performance. And then after my PhD, I wanted to combine my passion with sports and athletics. I was an athlete all my life. I played three sports in high school. I played college basketball. I did an Ironman. Um, I've oh, done wow. some mountaineering. So I wanted to combine my sleep expertise with my passion for sport. Ended up at the University of Calgary um, working with Canadian Olympic team athletes. And then currently I'm still working with athletes doing some consulting, but I'm the senior research scientist at Calgary Counseling Center, where I'm looking at sleep interventions for better mental health. Amazing. Yeah, I think it's it's always interesting to hear like, the backstory. And obviously, I think you said your aunt kind of got you into uh, everything. And I, I was wondering whether or not sometimes people get really into the thick of their thick field because they've had issues in that area themselves. Um, so I was wondering if you had any kind of horrific <laughs> backstory to terrible sleep or anything. But is your sleep generally good? <laughs> My sleep is generally good. So I have I have three little kids, though, and ah. um, they've been away for the last couple nights. And I've noticed a difference just you get interrupted a lot with children and um, it's just so nice to have, get to bed early, get a solid night's sleep, wake up without an alarm and my alarm being my kids. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, overall, yeah, I haven't really struggled with sleep disorders or anything like that. Um, I've been generally a healthy sleeper. That's good to hear. And actually, I know I didn't uh, say this was going to be a question, but I think you'd probably have some decent advice because I have clients uh, who struggle with their sleep and they have children. And my kind of best advice is do your best job. Don't stress about what you can't control. Do you have any kind of things you've developed as kind of obviously, you know, this stuff inside out and you have children, any strategies to kind of get the most from your sleep whilst having those kind of circumstances? It is. It, it's it's so challenging because um, they're so unpredictable. You know, one night they may sleep through the night, another night wake you up multiple times during the night. Um, so I would say trying to get to bed early, which can be hard for people, but really trying to prioritize sleep. And we always want time for ourselves, and that ends up being a lot of times at night too. So kind of trying to balance that. Um, napping was huge for me. So especially with my youngest, who's now, he just turned three. 
um, when he was born, you know, I had a four-year-old, a three-year-old, and then a newborn. So napping was a big part of my routine early on. So it's, you know, it's likely that maybe your night nighttime sleep is going to be impacted with children, but potentially when they're napping, you can nap as well. So that was a huge strategy to get me through. Cool. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. So yeah, the first question I wanted to talk about specifically, obviously, delving into kind of athletes and their sleep was the kind of general recommendation. I think a lot of the audience have probably heard is kind of adults need between seven to nine hours of sleep. And like athletes put their bodies through a heck of a lot. And I do also want to position this and see if there's any difference between athletes and then just kind of hard going trainees in the gym. Uh, a lot of the listeners here will be training one to two hours, four to six times a week. So probably not as quite as heavy as what an athlete will be doing, depending on the sport, I would assume, uh, but still kind of doing more than maybe the average person doing maybe 30 minutes of activity a day, if, if that for some people. Um, yeah. How, how does that, how do your guidelines differ? Like, do, do we need more? We do think that athletes need more. I would say the majority of sleep scientists working with athletes do think that they need more because of the physical and mental demands of the sport. Um, you know, so like you said, we need seven to nine hours for a normal, healthy adult. Um, and more sleep isn't necessarily better in that situation. So there's more and more research coming out that more of that seven to eight hours is ideal. Uh, and in particular, I just did a study on looking at depression levels and the amount of sleep people are getting. And in my study, I found both long and short sleep was associated with higher levels of depression with seven and a half hours being that sweet spot for the lowest depression scores. So I think people need to keep that in mind. Um, you know, more is not necessarily always better. And there is a lot of very variation in the inter-individual variability in the amount of sleep that people need. So for me, I need about seven and a half hours. For someone else, it may, may be more like eight and a half. Um, so that's important to keep in mind. And then we think athletes need more. So that recommendation may be more like eight to 10 instead of seven to nine in adults. Um, but it depends on the training load. If you have a high endurance athlete with a high cognitive load as well, they may need a little bit more. Um, if you have maybe a low endurance, but more strength training, maybe a lot of cognitive demand, they may not need as much as someone with high endurance activity. But I will say that more research is definitely needed in this area. There was a study that came out in rodents showing that when, when, the, when they're exercising more, they're generating more slow wave activity. So slow wave activity is what, when at sleep, we see that during the deepest stage of sleep, and that's where growth hormone is being released, tissues are being repaired, memories are being enhanced. And they found that those rodents actually didn't need as much sleep because they may have been fulfilling some of that slow wave activity while they're doing a monotonous activity. And what we see in the research is that triathletes are actually getting the least amount of sleep when we look at different athletes across sports, which is really interesting. Mm. You would think they would be getting a lot more just for that recovery piece. Um, but I... I have a little anecdotal story. I was working with Dave Proctor, who was attempting to run across Canada and break the Trans-Canadian speed record running, which would require him to run about 100 kilometers per day, about 60 miles a day for 66 days in a row. Wow. <laughs> so I was working with him and we wanted to look at his sleep objectively in the laboratory pre-race also during the race and then after the race. And when we did look at his sleep during, or sorry, before the race, he had had a very high training day. I think he was in around that 100 kilometer range on that particular day. So I was expecting to see a lot of deep sleep occurring during the night. And when we looked at his results, we sent it in, got it scored, and it came back and it was it was actually really low amount of deep sleep. And I was really surprised by this. You know, when I looked at the EEG, I 
could have scored potentially a few more stages of deep sleep. So it may be a little bit of a score error there. But um, it was shocking to me that he was not getting more deep sleep than um, definitely way less than I expected. So I think um, there's a lot more to be explored here. Um, but I just wanted to throw that out there as a potential caveat. No, it's, it's definitely interesting because I guess the listeners here will be more potentially physique competitors or people doing kind of weight training, but maybe some cardio alongside. And I guess maybe the weight training isn't that monotonous kind of activity is quite high intensity or you'd hope. Um, but some people might be doing lots of cardio, maybe if they're trying to kind of diet down for something um, and lose some weight and potentially that they're getting some of that kind of the slow wave activity and needing not as much sleep as they might expect they need. And is that something you can almost auto-regulate? Is there a good way of kind of knowing uh, how much sleep you should be getting? Uh, so like, I don't know, like you said, there's variation. Some people need more, some need less. You might need more at particular times. I think um, if possible, sleeping without an alarm clock will help kind of regulate and help you understand the amount of sleep that you need. So I think that's the best way if possible is to go to bed when you feel sleepy. And obviously caffeine can mask the impact of how sleepy you're feeling. Bright light can mask the impact of your alertness. You wanna try and avoid those you know, too close to bedtime. And caffeine we can get into a little bit later because I have an opinion on that. Um, but so under normal conditions, when you're not masking with some of these activities that may mask your levels of sleepiness, I think going to bed when you're sleepy, waking up without an alarm and looking at your levels of alertness across the day to see, you know, oh, wow, I'm, I'm pretty sleepy today. Maybe I should have gotten more sleep or potentially the quality of the sleep is poor. So that's another consideration. The three key factors that we're looking at is quantity of sleep, the amount of sleep that you're getting. The quality of sleep matters as well. So if you're getting 10 hours of sleep, but you're waking up multiple times during the night, potentially from a sleep disorder, that's not going to be very restful. And then the timing of sleep is important too. So trying to sleep in line with your chronotype, your preference for being a night owl or an early bird. So yeah, I think um, just an easy test might be to go to sleep when you're sleepy and then wake up without an alarm clock and kind of sometimes that's challenging to do when we have work responsibilities, but maybe doing this on a vacation when you don't have to get up for work or have some of these obligations may be a way to test that. Yeah, I, I really like that. And I like that you kind of caveated it in that you people can't just expect to be able to do it if they don't have an understanding of the modern day environment and how kind of even their what they're taking in dietary wise and kind of their environment could be impacting that because I, I didn't realize uh, kind of all those different things like the blue light and the brightness and caffeine and the half-life of that so we'll definitely dig into that but something I wanted to touch on just before was um, the idea of kind of banking sleep and hitting like a weekly sleep average and I think you mentioned just there that kind of the quantity quality is important so it's timing so maybe this kind of disrupts some of that because obviously the timing is going to be a bit different if you're banking sleep and trying to hit a weekly average but is that something you can do just like I guess you're kind of uh, almost getting more back by having naps can you do the same thing with sleeping more maybe people can do that on the weekend versus midweek they don't have that flexibility yeah, I'm I'm probably more there are a lot of sleep scientists out there that say you need to go to bed at the same time and wake up at the same time every single day of the week. And you know, consistency in sleep is important. So there's been studies to show that when we're looking at equal amounts of sleep, the differences between a regular sleeper and an irregular sleeper um, those who are more regular sleepers have better sleep quality, they have earlier melatonin release, they actually get better grades, they have better performance. So consistency is important. So you don't want to, for example, get five hours of sleep Monday through Friday, and then on the weekend sleep in three hours, and then, okay, I fulfilled my weekly requirement, I'm good to go. Uh, doesn't quite work that way, but I think people can be flexible. So trying to hit that minimum, maybe seven hours, 
and then potentially sleep in on the weekends within an hour, no later than an hour and a half, or supplementing with a nap during the day, getting up at a consistent time, but then if I get a, got a poor night's sleep, my child woke me up, I'm still gonna get up at a consistent time, but I'm gonna supplement with a nap during the day can be a useful strategy for people. And as far as banking sleep goes, I think it's a really important strategy for athletes approaching an important competition, or even for example, a night shift worker who is approaching a bunch of night shifts in a row. Um, banking sleep has been shown to improve performance during that sleep deprivation period and help you perform better. So in athletes in particular, we see uh, reductions in reaction time in rugby players. We see uh, improvements in serving accuracy in tennis players. We see improvement in free throw shooting in basketball players. So getting more sleep leading into that important competition, potentially at least one week before, potentially two weeks before that important competition is going to be really useful for performance during that competition. And I think another benefit is it helps reduce anxiety with a poor night's sleep prior to that uh, competition because we don't sleep quite as well. You know, when I did my Ironman, um, I, you had to be at the, at the site at you know, six o'clock in the morning. So of course, and I have the anxiety of the competition itself. So of course, I'm not going to be getting a solid, you know, seven, eight hours of sleep prior to that competition. But with banking sleep leading into that, I think it helps reduce some of that anxiety if you do get a poor night sleep prior to that competition. Yeah, I really like kind of it, it's not a black and white answer in that, yeah, I mean, you can just hit a weekly average or you have to hit the same times, I guess, uh, that a lot of people think about kind of uh, the, the your body doesn't know what time it is. Like you don't have to be in bed at 10 p.m. like 10 p.m. every night, but within a range of like an hour or so. I really like that kind of that kind of idea of a little bit of flexibility when you're actually tired, because I guess day to day, if someone's training rest day versus a training day or whatever it's going to be, they might be more or less tired at a particular time or a really stressful day at work kind of a bit more kind of active and they might be tired way earlier. So uh, mm -hmm. that, that makes a, a lot of sense. And something I'm interested in is the idea of banking sleep. I don't know if I've ever tried it actively, but part of me wonders how easy it is to do it because if you're not extra tired at that time, how easy is it to oversleep um, at that time? Like, is it is it something that we're good at doing, uh, kind of sleeping excessive amounts to what we need at the time? It is, it is pretty interesting because I think a lot of sleep scientists debate the term banking sleep. They, some don't even think it exists. They ah. think, but I think it's a matter of semantics. They, they define it more as paying off the sleep debt that's already accrued. So it's kind of depends on how you interpret it. Is it paying off the sleep debt that's already accrued or is it actually banking sleep? in advance to then help with sleep deprivation down the road. So it is kind of a matter of semantics. I think for someone who's getting their sufficient amount of sleep um, day in and day out, that they may have issues trying to bank sleep, um, you know, leading into that competition. So um, I wouldn't fret if you, have an inability to bank sleep. It may be that you're just getting the sufficient amount of sleep that you need. Um, but potentially, you know, adding in a 30 minute nap can help potentially bank some of that leading into the competition, maybe sleeping in a half hour, trying to get to bed earlier, um, can be ways to, to not make it so excessive where, okay, I want to be in bed for 10 hours, um, a lot of people that could cause insomnia because you're just not tired. You can't go to bed early enough. Um, so yeah, keeping that in mind that if you are getting a sufficient amount, then it may be a little bit more challenging yeah. to bank some of that sleep. That makes a lot of sense. And um, it makes a lot of sense in terms of like uh, for a lot of the people I end up working with or people listening again there. And athletes in general, you'll be going through your training program, accumulating fatigue, and eventually you'll need kind of one of those lighter weeks or something to dissipate that fatigue. And I, your 
sleep might not be that great in the period of time maybe you're overreaching or very very fatigued and then that kind of deload week or the the kind of lighter week of training probably easy to bank sleep because you're not training so much you're probably very sleepy because of all the kind of fatigue and kind of probably not been sleeping enough previously and you can kind of make up for that and in a sense recharge whilst you're also dissipating fatigue just physiologically from training lighter as well so it, it kind of nicely works in with that paradigm that i'm thinking about yeah and it works nicely with um tapering you know tapering before an important competition too it's likely that your training load isn't as high so you may have more opportunity to sleep more fast efficient fat loss does that sound like music to your ears the mini cut movement might just be for you mini cuts are like robbing the fat bank you want to get in and out with as much fat as possible in a short period of time, you could easily look to lose six to 12 pounds of fat. The mini cut movement is excellent. There's group support for extra accountability and also expert help within the group. We have educational videos to keep you on track along the way and you get all your nutrition and training customized and individualized for you. So if that sounds of interest, get involved with the mini cut movement. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So yeah, the next question is going to be the, the caffeine use. And it's really interesting to me because... I think within the space I'm in where people are just like pre-workouts are like used all over the place by like bodybuilders and gym goers, like people just love it. I'm shaking my head right now. (laughs) So this is something, I mean, I used to use them a lot and in finding more out about sleep, I was like, why am I using this? Just uh, my performance could be better if my sleep was better and that might dissipate the effect of what caffeine like it could be more powerful one than what the caffeine is going to do for me so i find it really interesting um that people do this sort of thing and i'd love to hear yeah obviously you've sh- shook your head and i'd love to hear your thoughts on kind of caffeine use for athletes mm-hmm. I, I mean the first thing to point out is that there was a study on pre-workouts and the amount of caffeine ranged from I think 90 milligrams to up to almost 400 milligrams which is four cups of coffee you know so and some people are taking this prior to an evening workout and and it's going to have a huge negative impact on your sleep quality, which will then compromise the workout itself, you know. So people really need to be aware of the impact of caffeine on sleep. So generally we see it takes longer to fall asleep, but we see less deep sleep activity. So that's, again, where I mentioned growth hormone is being released, tissues are being repaired. And if you're having a bunch of caffeine in the evening, it's certainly going to impact that. And I will also say there was a study that just came out showing that an energy drink with dinner, so that's about 80 milligrams of caffeine in adolescence, um, ended up reducing their sleep by about their deep sleep by about 20 minutes. And when they asked the adolescents, do you think this impacted your sleep? The majority said, no, no, this caffeine had no impact on my sleep. It didn't impact their ability to fall asleep. They were still able to fall asleep very quickly. And it, and it didn't objectively impact the amount of times that they were waking up during the middle of the night for long periods of time where you'd be able to remember that, but it was impacting that deep sleep, that fountain of youth that we're all trying to, you know, take advantage of. So um, it is challenging to be able to understand how caffeine does impact my sleep quality, because you may think, oh, I'm fine. I can drink caffeine at dinner and it's not gonna impact my sleep, but the reality is it likely is impacting your sleep. So the, ca- the way you metabolize caffeine is also a factor. So there was a study by Dr. Guest, Dr. Nancy Guest, which found that four milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of caffeine or per kilogram of body weight prior to a cycling time trial impaired performance by 14% compared to placebo in slow metabolizers of caffeine. So that CYP1A2 gene, um, those who had the slow metabolizer of that gene actually saw an impairment in performance when using caffeine. So I think the best way is to get get a nutrigenomics test to determine, are you a fast metabol- metabolizer of caffeine? Are you a slow metabolizer of caffeine? And then gauge your use of caffeine based on that. That's really interesting. And 
on that test is there i guess your us based is there like a comp like any companies you recommend or can you is it something you can find quite easily on a google search I've, I've actually never heard about it and i think it's quite interesting how easy is it to go and get done well um i am colleagues with dr guest she does have a company that she's um working with um she's actually I think maybe the lead scientist of, it's called Nutri Genomics. So I am a little bit biased in that regard, but I know that, um, and she's biased as well, but I know that this is a very high quality Nutri Genomics test that you can get cool. by this company called Nutri Genomics. So, um, but I will disclose that I am colleagues with her. Um, um, but yeah, I think people could probably Google it and find um, this type of test. And they also look at how you metabolize lactose. It's more um, nutrition-based as well. So it's not just about caffeine per se, but it also may give you good information with um, optimizing your nutrition as well. Cool. And I guess if people are stubborn or not wanting to get the test done, is there a rule of thumb kind of that people can follow for when to maybe cap their caffeine by a particular time or um, even uh, an amount of caffeine per day that you might recommend people stay under? I know if you, if you think about um, even the half-life of caffeine is around six hours. Um, so the quarter life of caffeine is around 12 hours. So if you have a hundred milligram cup of coffee at noon, a quarter of that's going to be in your system at midnight, which is, you know, maybe around a black tea, a green tea, maybe a little bit less. But if you subtract some hours of that more closer to bedtime, you may have the equivalent of a black tea in your system at bedtime, which you would never drink, I, I hope, <laughs> you would never drink a black tea just right before right at bedtime and and hope that it's going to improve your sleep quality so i would say noon at a minimum and then maybe even shifting that a little bit earlier depending on how you feel um maybe 10 a.m would be a better estimate cool yeah so i think for a lot of the listeners probably there be potentially people doing a nine to five and then they're feeling kind of sleepy after work and then they're like oh i'm going to take a pre-workout uh, maybe this is 5 5 36 p.m at night and this like you said pre-workouts you're easily getting 300 milligrams of caffeine in there and yeah they're going to bed with that all in their system which is going to be really tough uh, for them to try and yeah get through that is it actually in that on that regard do you have any thoughts and kind of ways around like other strategies people can use instead of using caffeine at those times uh, is it just a case of if you're well rested and well kind of slept that you should possibly feel better at that time. And I also, I wanted to touch on the vicious cycle as well. So you take the pre-workout in the evening, you have poor quality sleep and then the next following day you feel like crap and, you know, automatically reach for that caffeine. So there is kind of a vicious cycle there. Um, you know, uh, can you remind me what your question was again? Because I was thinking more along the lines of the vicious cycle. No, the vicious, that's a great point with the vicious cycle, because I think probably everyone listening has been in the vicious cycle where, yeah, you just, it just is a knock on effect. You need more and more to get the same response. Um, I actually, on that lines, before I ask you the, that question I had before, is there any way, what's your best way of kind of getting out of the vicious, vicious cycle, or if someone is highly dependent on caffeine, do you have a strategy of kind of tapering that down, going cold turkey? Um, how long do you need to kind of have a washout period for if you do need one? That's a great question. I, I started to go decaf myself um, when my youngest was about six months old. And um, getting through graduate school with, I ended up defending my master's when I was pregnant with my first. I had my first, then I had my second when I was defending my PhD, and I had my third during the postdoc. So um, I was I was hooked on caffeine at that point. You know, just graduate school alone can cause you to increase your caffeine consumption. But um, it was about when my son was my youngest was about six months old that I really wanted to you know, get off the caffeine and not be reliant on it every single morning. So what I did was I uh, gradually tapered. So I 
you know, started to reduce my consumption, do like a cup of coffee one day, then the next day try and have a black tea. And then if I got really tired in the afternoon, I might have a green tea. So I think kind of trying to gradually reduce your consumption is a good idea instead of going cold turkey. And then for me, it took about two weeks to get the caffeine completely out of my system to where I started getting refreshing sleep. It was amazing. And I wasn't reliant on that caffeine every morning. So it does take a while for caffeine to get out of your system. And I think gradually reducing your consumption. And then if you have a really poor night's sleep, you know, don't be afraid to have a green tea in the afternoon or a black tea in the afternoon. And um, just kind of try and gradually get it out of your system. And then currently I am, um, so I have, uh, showing my coffee cup right now. Um, I have, I mix half calf coffee. So I'm in Canada. So we have uh, kicking horse coffee, which is an amazing coffee that we have here. They have a blend that's half caffeine. So it has half the caffeine as usual. And they also have a decaf blend. So what I do is I kind of mix the two so that I'm only getting about a quarter cup of caffeine. Um, and you know, I potentially have two cups, so maybe it's about a half a cup of caffeine, maybe 50 milligrams. Um, and then I'll kind of alternate between coffee and tea. So the next day I might do green tea. I try and alternate between coffee and tea every other day and then completely go off caffeine for a while. And yeah, it just, it really seems to work for me and it doesn't mask my levels of sleepiness. So it helps me determine, okay, I really need to take a nap today, or I really need to go to bed early. Um, and I think it's, it's really useful for people to drink caffeine strategically. I'm not saying get rid of it altogether, but drink it strategically rather than automatically. Yeah, I really like that approach. And um, yeah, it's, I mean, caffeine, I didn't really realize how much caffeine has a flavor in itself in that you can tell if something's deep, well, certainly coffee, you can tell if it's decaf or caffeinated, but even like a, a Pepsi or a Coke, you can get caffeine free versions, which I thought was great because yeah, sure. I can have the same flavor and everything and now, but they also don't taste the same. Uh, but it, I think this is a really important discussion just because uh, for competitors to like a physique stage they're often low on energy and they're trying to replace that somehow. And so caffeine becomes a real big thing that they start taking more of. They're already in a really stressed state, kind of training hard, dieting down to very lean levels. And then they're having all this caffeine. So their sleep is just getting worse and worse and worse. So I think it's it's really important uh, for people to hear about this because I think probably you, I, I guess, physique competitors isn't your area of kind of speciality but i guess you'd be like be careful with using it excessively like that and using it like you said more strategically is a really good strategy and even people use it to get around like hunger pangs and things i think there's other things probably even other supplements that people could probably use instead of caffeine in those cases absolutely um you know there's been studies actually comparing uh, comparing caffeine to napping and in some instances napping is actually better for alertness performance you know so in the time it takes you to get a starbucks coffee you could be napping for 10 minutes and experiencing the same results without such a negative impact on your sleep quality at night I love that. And also saving a good amount of money there as well. So <laughs> multiple wins at the same <laughs> time. Uh, Although there, um, there are some nap studios out there where you true. can actually pay to uh, take a nap. That's Yeah, I have actually, I remember seeing those at one point. That is amazing. Um, so yeah, in terms of kind of uh, one of the challenges I've seen within your research and what you've looked at for athletes is kind of that competition that's coming and kind of they get anxiety about it and we're really kind of worried about it and I think the same happens for anyone that kind of trains hard or again if they're having a physique competition in future have you found any particular strategies that help them kind of calm themselves and not kind of uh, anyone has stress just about work or something it could probably work very similarly I guess is there anything people can do to try and prevent that causing their sleep to be worse? 
Having a pre-sleep routine, so having a bedtime routine is really important, especially for the traveling athlete as well, because it'll help you prepare your mind and body for sleep at home, but also on the road. If you have those similar um, routines, you know, it's not just important for a toddler, for example, to have a sleep routine. It's also important for adults for us to prepare our mind and body for sleep. We can't just flip a switch and expect to fall asleep instantly. So putting away those electronic devices an hour before bedtime, adding in a warm bath or shower, which temporarily increases temperature, but then makes it easier to fall asleep because your temperature drops. Uh, having a gratitude journal, do, having a to-do list right before bedtime, which is going to help offload those thoughts off your mind, get them on paper, make it easier for you to fall asleep and stay asleep. And then having breathing techniques, relaxation techniques. I like the cognitive shuffle so that you think of a word such as bedtime. You imagine all the objects you can starting with B, so ball, baby, bag, bus, banana. When you can't think of any more, you go on to the next letter, E, eagle, egg, ear. And by the time you get to the end of the word, you'll be sound asleep. So I use that for myself when I'm having issues falling asleep at the beginning of the night, but also strategy for when I wake up in the middle of the night. Um, I use that strategy. Also doing the 478 breathing technique helps activate your parasympathetic nervous system, that relaxation system. So uh, you would breathe in for four seconds, hold your breath for seven, breathe out for eight seconds, and repeat that four times. There's also a new one that I discovered was the five finger breathing. So you trace Trace your finger up so you breathe in, you trace your thumb up. When you get to the top, you breathe out and you go down and, and then you repeat. So you breathe in all the way to the top and then you know breathe out, heading down as you trace the finger. And this helps kind of activate um, your more of a mindfulness technique because you're using a lot of your senses senses to engage and that helps activate that parasympathetic nervous system so absolutely athletes need athletes in general population definitely need techniques to help them relax and prepare for sleep such an interesting you mentioned the breathing technique i don't know if i know um we spoke a little bit about uh what they called uh fitbits and those sort of devices but it's just reminding me on fitbit they have a function which is called relax and you press it and it kind of does the kind of it gets you to do the breathing it's very similar to what you said there maybe exactly that that it's using i don't know if you even know that the fitbit does this kind of relax technique oh wow that's great um that's that's good to have um yeah, I personally, I don't use a sleep tracker myself, um, but for some people, yes, it can be beneficial at trying to motivate behavior change. However, there is a certain population where they become more anxious by having yeah. it, and then people need to also be aware of the uh, validity of the results, so they are getting better, but... Um, they aren't quite there yet. And I hear time and time again, people will reach out to me saying, you know, my tracker is telling me I'm only getting 10% deep sleep. What's going on here? Like they're really worried about it. When in reality, it's likely that they're definitely getting more deep sleep. It's just the accuracy of the device is, is impairing that. And um, so yeah, people need to be aware of that and how is the device helping you. I think it can be useful in many instances, but it can create more anxiety in certain type of athletes and certain type of people in the general public. I find it really interesting because uh, yourself and Greg, both kind of very into this area um, and neither of you use a, a tracker for your sleep, which I find very interesting and i don't know if that says it all in a sense in that potentially it's not something uh greg often talks about the way he approaches sleep often and it sounds like you're very similar it's kind of like it's a lot of it is almost intuition like it's almost like too simple like if you feel well rested you don't need a device to tell you if you're well rested or underslept you probably know the next day um and it's, it's very interesting and in regards to devices are there any that if you were is there any that you'd recommend first of all is there any you'd say are kind of more valid less valid and um just because i know 
Uh, we spoke about the Aura Ring, Fitbit, kind of Apple Watches, and I know like some of them come at a much higher price point than others. Um, if people are just using it to kind of, how would you go about using it if you were to advise on if to use it? Would you ever recommend it in any case? I do. I do like the Aura Ring. I think that's probably the most promising device, potentially followed by a newer version of the Fitbit. Um, so I like the fact that Aura Ring can track multiple different physiological signals. So light, um, temperature, movement versus, an, you know, a standard tracker that only really can track movement maybe and some temperature potentially. Um, so I do like that aspect of Aura and they have had, they did validate their device with polysomnography, which I was describing earlier when I was at my aunt's lab. Um, but I do, I do hear people um, using Aura potentially or a different device where they felt like they got an awesome night's sleep and then they look at their, the application and it's telling me there's telling them their sleep score is, you know, at a 75 or something. And, and I think the more we know about this, I think that that feedback from the device could actually impair their performance. So in some instances, it's better not to have that feedback. Um, so it is really interesting, um, but I would say potentially the Aura Ring might be useful or maybe a newer device of Fitbit. I think it's really interesting uh, in that, I guess it's telling you I don't know how they work exactly, but if it was to tell you your sleep, maybe nobody knows. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say it, it, it all to themselves. If it could tell you some practical tips of to now, okay, your sleep was this. You should do this to improve your sleep. Then I could see it being something great. But as far as I know, a lot of the time, like I just try and do my best job, and like I'll, I'll get like I, I just try and do all the, the sleep hygiene and all those practices, and then I, I wake up and yeah, I feel a certain way. And you almost know if you're going to have a good night's sleep or a poor night's sleep. And if someone's listening to this, they probably already know, or they're interested in this area and they've listened to a lot of your work. They probably already know a lot of what they should be doing. So they kind of know whether or not they're going to get a better or worse night's sleep. Uh, and I don't know, maybe, so. I don't know, people might be interested in trying different supplements and seeing if that impacts the score. But if you've kind of said the, the accuracy is already not there yet to provide that efficacy, then yeah, it becomes a tool that maybe isn't as helpful as what it seems to be on paper. Yes, I I do like that idea. The ability to, well, for example, reduce your caffeine in, intake and see how that impacts the score across time. I think the more time points you have, maybe the more reliable it would be. Um, you mean you wouldn't have that off night here or there where it's not tracking accurately if you're doing it many, many time points across time. Um, so yeah, I think that's a good point that it could potentially be used to even some kind of nutritional optimization. Is it better if I have a snack before bed than fasting? You know, it sometimes people, sometimes athletes in general will wake up during the middle of the night starving because they've fasted, you know, since dinner. And I'm not a nutritionist by any means, but being able to test those little things out um, could be useful across time. Okay. It's a really good point in terms of the kind of the reliability versus validity. I think like it, it doesn't like if it's reliable measure, then you can track trends and that's kind of, that can give you information in itself. Uh, I always say it with like athletes, if they're weighing themselves on a scale, as long as it's the same scale in the same place, it doesn't matter if it's a percentage up or down off accuracy, as long as, it's telling you the same sort of scores. We can track a trend in what your mm -hmm. weight's doing. So mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. So something I did want to talk about was um, the, the study that you published on the athlete sleep screening questionnaire. Um, I'd love to hear some of the questions that are kind of involved within that um, and whether or not kind of that's something, I don't know, there's a lot of coaches that listen to this. Um, they may not be, well, some of them probably do work with some athletes. A lot of them will work with obviously uh, kind of physique competitors, is there anything from that that you could people could apply then and ask those sort of questions to their kind of clients or even themselves? Hey, Pascal here. I just quickly wanted to remind you of our online coaching service. 
At Revive Stronger, we put a huge emphasis on the personal aspect of our coaching. And if you want to take your physique and knowledge to the next level, hit the link in the description below. We, yeah, we, we developed this questionnaire. There wasn't a questionnaire out there that is, you know, identifying athletes with sleep problems. So that's, that's the point of the questionnaire. It's to identify who has a clinically significant sleep problem and who needs to, you know, who needs to be referred to a sleep specialist because of this. And there wasn't really anything out there. A lot of uh, researchers and maybe clinicians were using the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, which wasn't really validated in athletes and overestimates the number of athletes having a problem. So we, we um, studied 200 Canadian national team athletes. We, we used uh, actographs to look at how much sleep they were getting, the objective measures of sleep. We had them fill out the questionnaire. We had a certain percentage do an interview with our clinical sleep specialist. And we found that around 25% of these Canadian national team athletes had a clinically significant sleep problem. We were looking at quantity of sleep, quality of sleep, timing of sleep, um, were our main kind of questions that we were asking. And we found that with recommendations, with sleep education, that their sleep could be improved. Um, you know, if they take the test, we discover they have a sleep problem, we get them recommendations to improve their sleep, potentially get them insomnia treatment if they're suffering from that. And then when we tested them about eight months later, we found, you know, the majority of them were then within that normal range. And for anyone out there, you can actually go to centerforsleep.com. Maybe we can put this in the show notes. Absolutely. Um, and take the questionnaire online. You can email the results to your coach. So if you have some athletes that you're working with, they can email the results to you. It gives you standard sleep education. I helped develop all this. Um, so it gives you standard sleep education. It gives you tips if you're struggling with sleep during travel and kind of gives you individualized recommendations based on your responses and also tells you, yes, it does look like you're in that moderate to severe sleep category and you want to get further um, sleep assessment from a sleep specialist. That's amazing. I didn't realize there was that service was available because you're doing the coach's job as well, um, giving the individualized kind of feedback in terms of what they can do. I think that's really cool because I, I similarly was looking for something simple to give to my clients and I found, I don't know if you've heard of the sated score. Um, I was using that because it was a really short kind of, it was like five different kind of questions to ask them and it, it identified some things, but I think what you've outlined here is probably more specific towards people and like it, it's something people can just go to the website, fill it out. I, I imagine it only takes like 10 minutes or something. It wasn't a kind of crazy long questionnaire or anything. So I think that's really cool. Yeah, it's, it's only, it's a 15 item questionnaire, you know, it takes probably about five minutes to complete. And then you get the general sleep education and also the individualized recommendations, depending on your responses. And then the other one I wanted to talk about was, and I know uh, you didn't publish this one, uh, but you're familiar with the athlete sleep behavior questionnaire. Um, so I just wanted to kind of hear what was the difference like between this one to the other one? Um, is there anything people can take away kind of looking that up and use that for themselves? The athlete sleep screening questionnaire that I was talking about previously is more of a way to identify athletes with sleep problems, clinically significant sleep problems that you'd probably take, you know, maybe during preseason, potentially once towards, I probably wouldn't recommend during the season because that can create anxiety if, if a problem comes up. So probably preseason and then right after the season's done. So it's more of a kind of a long-term questionnaire. Um, the athlete sleep behavior questionnaire, my understanding is that it can be used more on a daily basis or a weekly basis. Um, I think more research, there are absolute fabulous researchers on that uh, questionnaire. Um, however, there probably needs to be a little bit more research to determine that cutoff. So there isn't a um, clinically or a significant cutoff 
to divide people into poor sleepers and good sleepers using the sleep behavior questionnaire, athlete sleep behavior questionnaire. Um, but potentially, um, I think it's a useful questionnaire, probably in combination with the yeah. athlete sleep screening questionnaire. Both of them could be used together and you're using questionnaires that have been validated in athletes specifically. Yeah. I really like that. I think it's like we can give as much practical advice on this podcast. You can talk about all these things, but it's really nice to have some like actually validated resources that people can go and check out and use for themselves in practice. And uh, then they can apply a lot of the things we've talked about with that in combination and that should help them along their way a lot. So yeah, I think that's really cool. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Uh, one thing you brought up previously, uh, and we might not have enough time to really delve into this, but it was uh, chronotypes uh, and I, I'd love for you to kind of delve into maybe just describing what they are briefly and then kind of talking about how can I guess we may have already touched on it a little bit actually at the start there in terms of kind of sleep and wake times but how can we identify which chronotype we necessarily are there are a couple questionnaires out there and maybe I can um, send you a link to put in the show notes for people to determine what type of chronotype they are Chronotypes, um, it's the preference for being a night owl or an early bird. So the preference for wanting to go to bed later, sleep in later, which is also linked with biology. So melatonin in night owls is released later than it would be for a morning type. And morning types would want to go to bed earlier, wake up earlier. And, you know, generally we say a night owl would be wanting to go to sleep after midnight, wake up after 8 a.m., whereas an early birds would be more like wanting to go to sleep before 10 p.m., wake up before 6 a.m. is kind of the general rule, I would say. Um, and it's driven a lot by biology um, and genetics. So if you have people in your family who are more night owls, it may be more likely that you're a night owl as well. Um, and we did publish a study on chronotypes in athletes. And what we found was that athletes were more likely to be a morning type. But for those athletes who were evening types, they had more sleep disturbance going on. Um, so it's something to definitely be aware of for people. And it relates back to the timing of sleep. So as I mentioned, you know, timing of sleep is an important factor. So if I am a night owl, it's going to be more beneficial for me to go to bed later and sleep later if, if I'm able to do that. And in a lot of instances, that's not possible because of the school demands or work demands that people have and our society is more geared towards those morning types. So in that situation, um, we can change when our, bio, when our melatonin is being released with the regulation of light. So we would want to block light at night if you're a night owl and um, get lots of light in the morning to help advance that circadian rhythm earlier. Potentially take melatonin if you're a night owl, um, which there can be a lot of issues with the content of melatonin. So you want to make sure that you're getting a good supplement in that regard. But, um, and melatonin is generally useful for shifting circadian rhythms in preparation for jet lag, let's say, um, not you, not to be used as to help you fall asleep necessarily. So melatonin is important blocking, blocking light at night, getting lots of light in the morning can help those night owls if they do have, you know, important obligations in the morning. And I guess uh, it's really interesting actually hearing that I'd never heard the strict definitions of like past uh, midnight and then before 10 p.m. Because I mess, uh, sorry, I imagine most people land, well, the person working nine to five probably goes to sleep. And most people, I guess, go to sleep between 10 and midnight uh, potential well i'm guessing so between 10 and midnight is when most people do you find uh, is there a, a spectrum it's not like you everyone you're either an early bird or a night owl do some people land on a bit of a spectrum that's correct so and i'm kind of throwing those numbers out there um there's probably there's not any research necessarily looking at that but yeah definitely there's a spectrum there's many of us that fall in between so about 15% of us are night owls 15% are early birds and the rest of us kind of fall in between 
and um, you know, more extreme night owls would be 3 a.m. or later. Wow. Um, you know, so it does, there is a spectrum there and it does change across time or across the lifespan as well. So when we're in early childhood, we're more likely to be an early bird. And then that shifts more towards night owl in an adolescent. So peak, peak night owl is around age 20 or so, 19 to 20 is where we see that transition to more of a night owl and then when we hit our 50s or so then we kind of revert back to more of that early bird so it does change across the lifespan as well yeah i think it's really cool that you mentioned like we already mentioned unfortunately some of our modern day environment can impact our ability to get to sleep but also with the modern technology we've got we have these things like i guess the light you mentioned maybe they're sad lights the kind of seasonal uh, seasonal affective mm-hmm. disorder lights um, to help kind of wake you up in the morning. I always say this to my girlfriend because she's more of a, a night owl. I'm like, you could use this lamp to like do your makeup in the morning or whatever is going to be. Oh, yeah. um, so it can like help kind of in a sense wake you up. And then obviously you talked about the melatonin kind of in a sense where... I'd hate to use the term biohacking because I guess that that feels like the right term in this sense. In, in a sense, that's kind of what we're doing using the modern environment to help us rather than it could hurt us in a sense. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, having a, what do they call it? Oh, a dawn simulator alarm clock where it gradually increases the light to then the point where, um, you know, we want to wake up. It's at the brightest level, which I have a funny story about that. I had a, um, someone was house sitting and taking care of our dog and I, I had the dawn simulator on and I, I don't use it very often, but this was like during the winter time. And, um, and then it started making the chirping noises and stuff. And, uh, the dog sitter was sleeping in a different room. <laughs> he was pretty freaked out <laughs> by <laughs> this bright light was chirp, chirping birds, um, going on. So yeah, that is, that has been shown to be helpful for night owls in particular, having that gradual bright light coming on, but yeah, also potentially use, uh, utilizing the seasonal affective disorder lights or they also have light glasses, which are really convenient because you're wearing them around. Um, the one that I know about is Luminet light glasses, which uses the full spectrum of light versus the retimers, which are more that blue light only. Um, so I have a pair of Luminet light glasses that I use for jet lag in particular, helping shift my rhythms. Um, so that, yeah, that could be another strategy is um, getting outside as well, if the season, you know, if you're in summer and you're able to get outside, uh, bright light can be as much as, you know, even 500 times brighter than our indoor lighting, depending on if it's direct sunlight versus if you're in a dim room. Um, so yeah, getting, getting light outside and in particular, in the morning hours helps, we're more sensitive to light during those morning hours and that helps shift our rhythms to an earlier time. So trying to get at least 30 minutes outside or a bright light before noon actually improves sleep quality. Amazing. I actually had never heard about those uh, glasses. Uh, I'm obviously familiar, not obviously, but I am familiar with the blue light blockers. So uh, it's great. <laughs> you can have your morning spectacles and now you have your evening <laughs> spectacles. And um, this is fantastic. So yeah amazing stuff uh, thank you so much amy for coming on to the show and going through all of this um, i think there's been some really great take homes and i'm going to make sure to have those links below so that people can access the questionnaires and things uh, if people do want to find out more about you specifically follow along with your work uh, where's the best place to reach out to you i'm on social media i'm on twitter and instagram at sleep for sport the number four um i'm also developing a website sleepwellthewind.com it's not quite ready yet so if you go there right away it's gonna look kind of weird but um i am hoping to get some good quality information on that website do blog posts for people and a place to go you know to for people to get good quality sleep information. Amazing. I'll make sure your Instagram handle and I'll put the website there because we never know when people are going to be watching this podcast anyway. It's going to be here for years. So people can check that website out now or whenever they come in to listen to this. So again, thank you so much for being here and thank you everyone for listening. Take care. Thanks for having me.
So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people, uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics, discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We cap them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.